A word of appreciation. Thank you, Elmer. Jim. And to all those that have been involved in the service for this entire month, it takes a lot of effort and is nerve-wracking to put something like this together. I've been gone. I've been in my beloved Alaska, as many of you know. Uh, but it's nice to be home. It's nice to be back and to uh, get an invitation to speak. I occasionally get invitations to speak, but I very rarely get a second invitation to speak <laughs> from the same group of people. It's, it's funny how that, that happens. I'm not sure what message to take home on that. Um, the theme of missions for us, the theme of missions. I'm a product of Seventh-day Adventist mission. I'm a product of Seventh-day Adventist evangelism. It is warp and woof, is that the right term, of who we are. On March 27th, 1982, I went down into the waters of baptism. This proves it. This is my certificate. I carry it in my Bible. 27 years ago, I committed myself to doing something for myself and for my God and for His church. That was in March. By the fall time, I was able to attend my first camp meeting. They're in Alaska. We have the best camp meetings in Alaska, mind you. This is pretty good. We don't grow much hay up there. <laughs> um, but I got to listen to a preacher at camp meeting, W.E. Brad Bradford. Anybody heard Brad speak? Anybody heard him preach? Wow. I was grabbed by that man and, and God's spirit that evening in camp meeting. I had given myself to God earlier in life, and I had walked away, largely. And when I returned, I thought to myself, when I'm listening to Brad's uh, sermon that night, I need to do something to lock myself into this good pattern, this good place, these good people. I need to do something to fix it, because I couldn't trust my own choices. So I decided that night at Brad's behest. He gave a call. He always gives a call at the end of his sermons. And I went forward and I said, I'm going to dedicate myself to working for God in this church, come what may. And that's been 27 years ago. It's been a great decision, really. To make a longer story short, I was a missionary for a while. I went to a couple Eskimo villages. Go ahead and Google it if you have your iPhone with you. St. Lawrence Island, the island of Gamble. I said that in the first service, and someone showed me later that they had Googled it while I was here. St. Lawrence Island, then over to the village of Selawick, working with Eskimos. Went off to Walla Walla College, went off to seminary, went back to Alaska to be a pastor. And through those years, I really settled into a specific conviction about how I would work for this church and for God. And that specific conviction focused on helping people get along with each other. You see, in those intervening years, I was astounded. And I remain amazed at how we fight with each other. Is anyone else amazed by that? I just don't get it. We give ourselves to Christ. It's clear in Scripture, is it not? And yet, we continue to fight. Now, I know we're weak. And some will say, argue explicitly, 
people who love each other fight. It's the way it ought to be. Well, bear with me. This is going to be the topic of our time together. I believe... Well, let's look at Scripture. Uh, and uh, It's in uh, John chapter 15, and I think Nick may be able to put it up on screen if, he, if, if it comes up. Uh, John chapter 15, very basic. And I, you know that I am into the use of reason and of reading Scripture carefully and closely with the best scholarship and so on. But there are sometimes that things are just, uh, just unequivocally clear from Scripture. John chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus' words himself, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He said on further in that chapter, I command you to love one another. Later he said that the love that God has for him may be the love we have toward each other. Imagine that. The love of God the Father for the Son is the kind of love that we might be able to experience. So my simple mind says, okay, when I give myself to Christ and I go down into the waters of baptism, it must mean that it's supposed to make a difference for how I live and how I interact with others, whether it's at home, whether it's at the office, whether it's reading the newspaper or watching the TV screen, it ought to make a difference. That's what I believe. 27 years later, fast forward, 27 years after camp meeting, listening to Brad Bradford preach, and he's over here at La Sierra University this spring in May for the HMS Richards Honorary Lectureship. Anybody get over and hear Brad on that occasion? I couldn't help but go. 27 years. I haven't uh, had the opportunity to hear him preach. I've seen him and heard him in other places, but I hadn't heard him preach, so I wanted to go and see. Older now, he tripped on the way up to the pulpit. He fell down. They had to get up and help him uh, back up uh, and, and to the pulpit. But you had the sense when he got in the pulpit, it was where he was. This is the place where he is. This is who he is. And he held forth as only Brad can do. What did he say? The essence of his message was this. Seventh-day Adventism has a pretty good set of doctrines. What we need to learn is how to love each other. After 60 years of working for the church, in the church, and in developing some of these very fundamental beliefs that we uphold, his message was, we've got a pretty good set of beliefs. What we need to learn is how to love each other. I couldn't agree with him more. You, you probably guessed that. I really could not agree with him more. Maybe you don't know who Brad is. Uh, very quickly, um, lifelong Seventh-day Adventist. His mother was one of the first African-American uh, persons baptized when the church made an explicit missionary effort to the colored people of the South. Uh, his family, his mother himself, lived through the slavery and the explicit racism that this country has forced he and his people through and that oftentimes we see in our church still today. And he worked for us and with us and amongst us for 60 years. He was a scholar. He read widely. I saw him engage administrators. I saw him engage congregations. I saw him engage academics. Every single setting that he was ever in, he did it well. I think 
I could, I, I'm certain I can hang on to what he had to say. And so I wanted to hear it, and I was glad to hear it. I, I can't agree with him more. So this is my mission to the church, to try to help us get along together. It was nice to hear this mentor preacher of mine say something roughly similar. We all may have one or two things to, uh, to, pick, uh, to pick at in the fundamental beliefs. As an academic, as a scholar, I like to dig in there and wrestle around with these fundamental beliefs. But far more engaging to me is this question of why we would be harmful to each other. Why would people hurt each other purposefully, even after they've given themselves to Jesus Christ? Well, can't we all just get along? This has been the, the catchphrase. Gosh, you know, as a pastor wrestling with people in the congregation, can't we all just get along? <laughs> it's not rocket science, right? It seems uh, fairly straightforward. So I've been working for 20 years under this assumption because the question of can't we all just get along demands an assumption underneath it. The assumption is we ought to get along, right? If I ask the question, can't we all get along, it means we assume that we ought to be able to get along and that we ought to be getting along. Many people just don't buy the assumption. Maybe I've been working under a false assumption all these years that we ought to be getting along. Many people simply say that the nature of the way things are is conflict. That's the way it is. That's the way God intended it. After all, we have a great controversy theodicy. This is how we explain things, that we're in a controversy. And if I'm too weak to engage the battle and go fight for God, then I've got a problem. So getting along with each other, whew, I'll let other people worry about that. I don't care about getting along as long as I know my neighbor knows what God wants me to tell him. If I have to kill him to do that, so be it. <laughs> I know many, many Christians like that. Many, many Christians like that, right? So am I, am I laboring under a false assumption that we ought to be getting along? Maybe I just not ought to worry about that. Maybe we ought not to worry about it. In fact, maybe our assumption ought to be we need to fight. We need to purposefully get into the fight, not just in a national scale by sending out these stupid emails, not just in an international scale by denigrating all of the other nations, not just in a, in a workplace scale by speaking poorly about our workmates, but even in the family. Maybe even in the family I feel convicted to speak for God. Words of rebuke to other family members. Maybe it's the fight that I need to assume, not the peace. Which of those assumptions are the assumptions with which you engage life? It makes a difference on what words come out of your mouth. Which of those assumptions are the ones for you? Have you ever spoken for God? A couple illustrations. Just recently, a man was in church serving as a deacon, and while he was going down the aisle, someone pulled out a gun and shot him dead. Did you hear this story? Why? He was a physician, and he, he, he performed abortions. So this person sitting in the pew brought a gun to church that day, shot the man dead because God told him to. 
because he was going to be strong for God and enter the fight and do what he knew God wanted him to do. What goes through the gray matter between our ears? Right? Maybe you've heard of the Seventh-day Adventist fellow, the pastor, who invited all of his church members to come into his church so they could be safe from the warring other tribes somewhere in Africa. Right? You remember this story? The pastor that brought all of his people into the church, locked the door, told them, don't worry, you'll be fine. Then he went to the other tribal group, opened the door for them. They came in and butchered every single person in the church. For God? Where where does this stuff come from? If it's not with weapons, maybe it's with words. Standing in the uh, lobby of a church in Virginia where we lived for a few years. Just talking with a friend there in the lobby. It's a big lobby, nice big doors. We see this African-American family come through the door, and he leans over to me. And I won't repeat the exact words that he said, but it was something to the effect of, what are they doing here? They have their own church down the road. When people talk about racism, it's because they experience it. They live it today. It's not historical to our country. It's not historical to our church. It's today. And if we don't speak up in a kindly, peaceable way to address it, how do we make progress? Maybe it's the fight. Maybe I've been working under a false assumption. So I dig in, I drive into Scripture, and I say, okay, I need some evidence here. I need some evidence that shows Christians get along, and that's the way it ought to be. And so I look to the New Testament, and I was frustrated. Turn with me, if you wish, Luke chapter 24, sorry, chapter 22, Luke chapter 22. So I'm looking in Scripture to find some good, good evidence for getting along. Or did they fight? Maybe I'm supposed to get into a fighting mood and and fight for God. Well, there in Luke, the apostles are together with Jesus. Verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them, among the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded the greatest. They're with Jesus, in his presence, fighting with each other. Not much good news there for me in my assumption, right? Okay, let's move along. Um, the apostles again. Uh, I won't, you don't need to turn there, but you remember in, in chapter 1, there's a note that says the apostles were all together in one accord. You remember that? It's not a Honda. It's a real spiritual togetherness. All together in one accord. Why on earth did they put that in Scripture? Because it was amazing. Here are these guys that fight in the presence of the Savior of humankind, and they're in agreement. This is good news. So the Bible writer said, we better put that in there, right? (laughs) They're not fighting anymore. Something has happened. We go on to chapter 15 of the book of Acts. You get there eventually to verse 36. Paul and Barnabas, missionaries, focusing in on missionary work. Chapter 13, the church in Antioch decides to set them apart, 
to be missionaries. They lay hands on them. They give them support and encouragement and tell them to go out and share the message. So they did. They had a great tour. Some of it is recorded here. Sometime later in chapter 15, verse 36, it records what happened. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, I don't know, it's probably a different version. This New International, I'm in Revised Standard Version. There's a good fight for us. Come, Paul says, let us return and visit the brethren in every city where we proclaim the word of God. Preach the word of of the Lord and to see how they are. Go ahead, Nicholas. Verse 37, and I'll keep reading from the screen as it scrolls forward. (laughs) All right, back to the Revised Standard Version. And Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So they'd been on this earlier mission journey, and apparently this guy John Mark decided he needed to go home. He couldn't do it anymore. He he gave up on the mission trip, and he went home. Well, Paul didn't much like that. And so when they're together again, they decide to go back out. Barnabas wants to take him with him. Paul says, absolutely not. No, I'm not going to. Paul tended to like to fight, it seems. This is not the first occasion in Scripture, nor the last. And the next verse says, verse 39, And there arose a sharp contention, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas, and I assume went in a different direction. Well, Paul later fights with Peter for joining the Judaizers. There's plenty of evidence in the New Testament about the way Christians fight. Am I laboring under a false assumption to think that we ought not to fight? Which assumption do you engage life with? What about the early church period? If there's fighting in the New Testament, uh, what about the early church period? Uh, Plenty of fighting there, too. I don't know how many of you know or remember this fellow named Marcion. Marcion was a very charismatic leader in the early church, and he was gathering these New Testament books together, uh, asserting that they were inspired and ought to be added to the Old Testament. But the list was different than other groups of Christians round about. And one of the other groups of Christians decided that Marcion ought not to be included in the group of Christians any longer and formally named him apostate. Began the demise of Marcion and the group that followed him. Fights over the nature of Christ. Fights over the nature of the Trinity. Fights over the nature and content of the books of the New Testament. Plenty of fights in the early church time. The Great Schism, those of you historians of the church, 1054, I think it is. Look it up on Wikipedia if you want. The Great Schism, or sometimes the schism between East and West, when Rome and Constantinople were arguing about certain theological issues, I guess, and they decided to split. Roman Catholic Church in Rome, and in Constantinople became the seat of orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, the Eastern branch of Christianity. And we, Seventh-day Adventists, 
Go back to the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther pounded on the door with his 95 theses, right? Zwingli, some of these other uh, keynote reformers, John Calvin, who was known to not really agree much with some of the people in his own community there in Geneva, even putting some of them to death. Ought we to labor under the assumption that we should get along? What about Seventh-day Adventism? Shall I recount the ways we fight? Maybe we know well enough some of the ways that we fight with each other. I love the fact that Seventh-day Adventism has this sense that we're world church and that there's unity in our church. And I believe there is, but it's a rhetorical unity. It's a rhetorical unity that reminds us of who we are and how we've come to be who we are. Don't imagine that it actually physically exists. Okay? A rhetorical unity that is powerful for us to keep us in some sense, in some way together, even when we fight with each other. And we do that well. What assumption are you laboring under? What assumption? What do I do with my struggle? Well, if my old assumption is wrong, if we really can't get along with each other, and if Elder Bradford is right that we do still need to try to learn to get along with each other, where am I? I have to have some kind of modified assumption. And it goes something like this. We can't all get along together. This is not easy for me to admit. I've worked for a long time trying to figure out ways to help us get along. We can't do it. Sometimes we have to split. In the wake of that, I continue to cling to the idea that we still have to be decent to each other. Even if we disagree with each other, even when we can no longer bear the sight of each other, we still have to be decent to each other. We cannot throw words and weapons of harm toward each other. Scripture and our God simply won't allow for it. That's my modified assumption. For me, there are a couple of derivative rules. I like rules. I'm an ethicist, right? Rules and uh, character traits and so on. A couple derivative rules. If I understand that, if my modified assumption is okay, by force of practice, by force of experience, can't all get along, but we still have to be decent to each other, one of my rules is to understand that it's okay sometimes if we have to split. Plenty of illustrations of that, nationally, internationally, in church. I've just rehearsed some of them. In our families, we all have stories in our families where people just can't get along. We must still be decent to each other. The second rule is one my mother uh, taught me. If you don't have something good to say, thank you very much. If you don't have something good to say, don't say anything at all. Now, some of us are in positions that the community has given us, put us into, that the family may have put us into, positions of leadership where we do have to say some things sometimes that are incredibly difficult and may be taken as really harmful. And yet, someone has to play this role as a leader. 
The church chooses these people. We can fight with the church about how they choose them, can't we? If you're in a position of leadership, please be very careful about what you actually do say. This was my mother's second rule. Mark, think before you speak. Okay? She says, if you have to speak, most of the time, just be quiet, right? If you don't have something good to say, just... But if you have to speak, think about it before you speak. So if you're in a position of leadership, whether it's uh, in a family or workplace or a church or somewhere, do it carefully, really, really, really carefully. If you're not in a position of authority, just don't say anything. Just be quiet, please. We have enough fighters we don't need you getting in there, fighting it some more. If you don't have something good to say, just be quiet. It's not rocket science, right? Under what assumption do you labor? Now, those of you who know me well enough know that I don't do so well at actually keeping these rules of mine, <laughs> right? Um, nonetheless, uh, I, I will not allow myself to operate in life away from those rules, as if they don't mean or, or have no, no, no relevance in my life. Let's finish up with Scripture, the book of Romans, chapter 12. I might well have read this passage as the entire sermon. Uh, the book of Romans, chapter 12, beginning with verse 9. Paul, remember, well, as, as the scholars uh, believe, Paul dictated the book of Romans, and he was no stranger to fighting, as I, I've just noted. You probably were well aware of that. So these are his words later on in his life as a missionary. This is not early in his life as a missionary. This is later on. And he says, love, or let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Listen to that. Outdo one another in showing honor. Fine. I understand that sometimes we have to split. This verse still bears sway. Those people with whom you disagree, those people with whom you fight, those people with whom you have finally come to the realization you can't be in their presence... You must outdo them in honoring them. That's no small task. It's what Scripture calls us to. Moving along. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope. Tribulation. Constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. You notice Paul said... Practice hospitality. I don't think he had the gift of hospitality. Some of us do. Others of us have to practice it. Okay? <laughs> practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. And the last verse, if possible. So far as it depends upon you, 
live peaceably with all. You notice where he puts the burden. He puts the burden on me. He puts the burden on you. If possible, and he's, he's noting the fact, with some it's just not possible. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, because what the other person does, you have no control over. What you do have some semblance of control over is yourself. As, as long or as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. We have a closing scripture. It's number 545 in your hymn books. I won't uh, be actually singing. <laughs> one of the last times I led a hymn uh, in one of my churches in Alaska, I looked out about midway through the hymn and there was a woman going. <laughs> so I'm going to turn off my microphone, but if you would all stand with me. 545.
bow your heads with me as I pray. Father in heaven, we see Jesus, we feel his calling to us to live peaceably with others, with those whom we love and are called to love, but it's not easy. We are sinful and struggle. We ask again for your grace. We cling to that strength that you've given us, and we pray that you would give us an extra measure as we move forward, honoring others, and as much as lies within us, through your grace, living peaceably. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>